Hello, I'm Hedy Kyle. I'm a book conservator, a bookbinder, and a book artist. And this is Cut the Craft. I know, I never even imagined it goes through the summer and then through the next winter. Oh, <laughs> really? really something but anyway we are good we are good we have a you know we have a nice warm comfortable house oh good and we have um we don't see anybody we just see people outdoors maybe sometime take a little mm -hmm. walk mm -hmm. nice. hang out at people's porches for a few minutes and then we just um amuse ourselves <laughs> so far it's still working <laughs> Oh, nice. <laughs> I thought you were going to say like puzzles or Monopoly, but I feel like Monopoly breaks families apart. But you know what? My husband, unfortunately, is not a gamer. He, he uh, doesn't like games. Uh, so he, he likes reading and re reading loud and talking about, you know, discussing things. So we do that. But whenever somebody comes, I got the games out. I love games. <laughs> Well, are we ready to get started, you think? Yeah, yeah, I'm ready. Yeah. Yeah, sure. All right, sweet. Well, welcome to Cut the Craft, everybody. I'm Brian. And I'm Amy. And we are here with Haiti Kyle, a bookbinder, book conservator, and book artist up in the Catskills. Haiti, <laughs> welcome to the show. Thank you, Brian and Amy. I'm pleased to be with you. Um, so, Haiti, can you tell us a little bit about what, you're ma what you make? and uh, your process right now it's kind of boiled down to making pretty much what i i don't have any necessarily um big aims anymore you know i i work for, i play a lot i hmm. i still make books but i also do a lot of other things i i like making paper sculptures small paper uh, sculptures folded and um painted and using up all my wonderful papers that I've saved over years. And now I feel like everything goes, you know, whatever I like to use, I use it, even if it doesn't work out and not sorry to, to have wasted it or there's mm -hmm. no such thing anyway. Mm -hmm. You know, whenever something doesn't really work out the way I want it to, I still change it around. So it comes out in the end as something. And, um, I have to say the the other thing I've been really lately interested in is clay. Hmm. Um, okay. I have an opportunity here to work with clay, and I've met a, a, my neighbor. One of my neighbors is a really good potter, and so I've been learning from him and um, been making, not using the wheel, not making any traditional pottery, kind of using it as if it was paper. I, oh. I work with porcelain and I roll it out very thin. And then I form it and shape it. And it's been really nice. And it's kind of like a, um, working with paper and working with clay are two different things. And yet uh, your hands are just kind of getting really involved with both materials. And it's, mm -hmm. it's wonderful to manipulate them. So I'm having a good time working along. And um, um, since I moved to the Catskills, I have been connected with uh, a gallery uh, where I am a member, which is a co-op gallery, mm -hmm. but I'm also have been um, had have opportunity to show in some other galleries that are around here. So I've been pretty busy. 
Wow. It sounds like it. Yeah. So, uh, uh, Haiti, um, one thing is that, you know, most our listeners are from all kinds of different crafts, uh, whether they're woodworkers and or we do. We have had a couple ceramicists on the show or I guess one so far. So could you in the book world, you're like a household name. Everybody knows and loves Haiti Kyle. Um, oh, and, yeah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so I was hoping maybe you could tell us like a little bit about your background and sort of how you got into the book world. And because I know you've kind of jumped through, you know, you mentioned book binding, book conservation and book art, which mm. to many people would sound like the same thing. Yeah, for me, they all came together in, in New York in the early 70s. I had moved there, I'd moved back from California to New York because I was like in desperate need of a career and something I could follow. I had studied uh, graphic arts and painting, and uh, but that, uh, you know, it was difficult to find work in that field. And book, I also studied book illustration, but I never found a book before or had any specific interest in how the book was actually put together. Hmm. And so when when I, I, I came to this country in my early 20s and I moved to California, lived in Berkeley, raised a family. And one, one day, and this was in the 60s in Berkeley, and they had this thing called the Free University, and they offered bookbinding classes. And my friend took one of those classes and I thought, oh, my bookbinding classes, what the world is that about? <laughs> and so she called me after her first two classes. She said, you have to come over and look at it. And I came over and she had a stack of books sewn, you know, the, just the, mm-hmm. sec- the signatures stack and sewn on tapes. And I was like, no way. This is so incredible. <laughs> and that's how that's that was the first spark, and then I went to a flea market, which we always did, and and I looked at some old decrepit books, and I picked up a few, and I thought, oh, let me just kind of see how I can put them back together again, mm-hmm. without any knowledge or anything. Just took them home, looked at them, and thought, this one has no cover. How am I going to attach it again? So that was my first experience with the physical um, body of the book and trying to fix it up. It was hard. <laughs> none, of the, none of the covers actually moved freely. They were so stiff. Uh-huh. And, you know, when you bend them back, they, and, and I didn't have the right materials, and I just thought, no, no, this is not going to work. Then I let it go. <laughs> then about a year later, ended up in New York, looking for a job and um, I was trying to set up a silk screen business, but I didn't have really the experience and the financial backing to do that. And so one day I met this woman and uh, I was talking to her and um, that I was looking for a job and for something interesting. And she said she was a book conservator at the New York Botanical Garden in the Bronx uh, to make it short she offered me a job in in her conservation lab and I went there and I got hired and this was in 71 I think yeah okay and they paid me 250 an hour oh. <laughs> <laughs> what? Yeah. Oh, wow yeah, how is that but I took the job because I loved the place 
And I could tell that there was something there for me. Mm-hmm. I just had to have the patience and accept it and do it. Yeah. So I went there, I lived way downtown, and I took the subway every day to, up to the Bronx, went to the New York Botanical Garden, and it was great. It was great. The only thing that was not great was the pay, but everything was <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> but anyway, the, the work I did was to their satisfaction, and they also saw that I was really into it and that I wanted to stick with it. Mm. So they sent me um, to Laura Young. Laura Young, are, are you familiar with her? Yeah, yeah. She's a really famous like book book conservator, correct? She is a grand lady of, of book bookbinding, book conservation, alongside with Carolyn Horton. They were about the same generation, and they both had studios in Manhattan, and they both had students, and they taught conservation mostly and bookbinding. Cool. Very cool. Very traditional, extremely traditional. But at the time, I really didn't know anything much about other books. You know, I had never even, uh, I don't know, I probably had seen some, but it wasn't really my major interest. So I I went along with that. So they sent me to her. um, They paid for the lessons. She charged $8 an hour. What? Yeah. Whoa. And they paid for that. And I went like, uh, you know, at least a full day every week or maybe sometimes two days. And it was great. So she taught me everything. Wow. Uh, she was the first teacher that um, uh, there was maybe one or two earlier that I really respected and did what they told me to do. Mm-hmm. Most of the time I didn't. You know, I just always <laughs> thought I, I'm not going to do that. I want to do it this way. <laughs> but she was not that kind of person. If you, you know, if you didn't want to do what she told you to do, you probably didn't have to come back. <laughs> <laughs> so for once in my life, I stuck to it, even though when it was hard mm-hmm. and repetitive. And, you know, and you do something and then you go to her and you show her and she's kind of doesn't say anything and looks at you and she says, are you satisfied with this? Oh, and then you say, um, well, I spend a lot of time. and Yeah, but that's not the question. Are you satisfied? <laughs> and you finally have to admit, no, you're not really satisfied. Okay, do it over again. Oh, wow. So I learned a lot from her, a lot. And the other good thing was she was the, the president of the Guild of Book Workers. Mm-hmm. And she knew everybody. Ah, so very. so she was able to like kind of introduce you to a lot of different oh people yes yeah that was a really great they came to her studio and then we were always all you know sitting around in little circle and discussions and show and tell and it was just very interesting you know very mm-hmm. but at the same time uh, i mean i worked at the garden i rebound a lot of books i made a lot of enclosures i i was really interested in the whole um thing of keeping the library um, in good shape and making right. things accessible for readers and protecting things and, you know, doing all that stuff. And, um, but at the same time, I kept looking at the books that I took apart and it, going through the shelves and looking at weird things. And I became very interested in, uh, you know, what else can you do with this? Mm. Right, and, right. And so I started making my own little structures, and I was 
very influenced by um, Japanese accordion books mm. or any any Japanese books and or any other books also like um, all the things that came from Asia, India, the palm leaf books, uh, um, and then of course the Egyptian. The, uh, wow. th- there was just so much, you know, it was amazing. Wow. And I began to research and study and go to exhibits and meet more people. And we would always hang out together and discuss books. And that's not there anymore. It was so intense. It was incredible. (laughs) (laughs) And then I met Richard Minsky. Will you tell us a little about who Richard Minsky is? Richard is, um, um, he founded the Center for Book Arts in New York. And it was at first in a storefront on Bleecker Street, just a few blocks away from where I live. And it was, I I mean, we, I've discussed things with him a lot of times, but I'm not exactly sure how he started, why he started this. I think he wasn't, he just kind of did something. And then more and more people came and then he got connected with the hand paper makers and the printers and so it was, he just was able to get all these people together and get some real energy in there and get things going. And he himself was um, what most people probably think he was pretty eccentric. <laughs> and the people around Laura Young thought he was uh, just crazy. They didn't, they thought the whole Center for Book Arts was a hoax and it was like a horrible thing. It was, degrading the book, and um, nobody wanted to even go near there. Wow. And so then we had a, sh- we had a, a, a jury, sh- no, we had a show at the Beinecke Library in, in New Haven, and um, it was not juried, so anybody could participate. So mm-hmm. Richard sent a book. It was called, it was actually The, the Birds of America, which is a fairly large volume, he had bound it in black leather, and then he just glued on the front cover a pheasant wing. <laughs> <laughs> and when they are, yeah, just just like that. That's how he is. And then when they unpacked it, a few feathers fell off from the wing, and they were disgusted. Oh. He, he said, no, we're not going to put this in the show. And I was on the on on helping putting the show together, and I said, "Listen, this is a not a jewelry show. I mean, you can't just because you don't like it put somebody out, you know." Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, no, they weren't going to put it in. And then Richard <laughs> came, and that's the first time I met him actually in black leather, with you know, really dressed up with silver chains and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, "Where's my book?" <laughs> oh no. <laughs> And then, uh, then uh, I mean, he took it. He took it with a sense of humor, and so. But, but we became friends actually. And then he invited mm-hmm. me to the center, and he said, um, I, "At the meantime, I had shown a couple of little folded things and my first book structures that were different from the traditional ones." And he liked that, and he said, "You, know, I want you to teach here." And then I said, "I'm oh, not, but I don't." not ready to teach. He said, oh, yes, you, you can teach what, what, if you teach this kind of stuff, I, you're ready. 
So I told Laura Young, and she was, she was really, no, you can't do that. You can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, but I said, I, I just want to try it, you know. I, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was, as I said before, it was only a few blocks from my house. And so the first class I had with 10 people in it, and they wanted to do a traditional book. Mm-hmm. So I mean, I showed them how we, we were doing a, a, a book sewn on on um, tapes, and then they wanted to do real headbands. Oh my god! Okay. I had just learned them. <laughs> and it was so hard. I think I almost I almost threw in the towel that night because ten people are coming. What am I going to do now? How am I going to do this? How this this? Oh, and I didn't even, you know, when you want to teach something, you really need to know it from backwards up. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> totally. Yeah, and and for, uh, well, for listeners who don't know what the headbands are that Haiti's talking about, they're these tiny little, they look like little caterpillars at the top <laughs> and the bottom of the spine of the book. Mm. And they are notoriously really fussy too, so. And so yeah, they're done with from, silk. Yeah, it's yeah. Wild. It's two colors of silk, and you have to constantly change the color. And uh, they're not easy to do. And and most people, I mean, a lot of people use them now. You can buy them already pre-done and just stick them on with glue, mm-hmm. which is not. I you know, there's so many different kinds. I really love doing them, but I don't particularly like ten people asking me where am I now and what am I going to do next. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and tangle and make a knot or lose oh it was home anyway, <laughs> it, it got better and, and I taught there for many years and it was was great coming up you can join North Bennett Street School on Thursday March 4th for a conversation with artist Janet Eckelman who combines ancient net-making craft with original computational design software to create sculptures at the scale of buildings that transform with wind and light. And yes, it is as cool as it sounds. It's also free to attend. All you have to do is register at nbss.edu itm. And here you can also view upcoming events and past event recordings. So don't hesitate, act now. Why were you so drawn to, you know, these book, these like fringe bookmaking people? Like you had sort of been brought up in a pretty restrictive teaching environment. And what was the, like, why were you drawn over to the Center for Bookmaking? Yeah, well, that's a good question. But my, <laughs> the way I am is like, I question everything. Mm, that that okay. I make or that somebody else shows me. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. after seeing all the books and the boxes that people made at mm-hmm. Laura Young's shop and at the Botanical Garden and in the Gilda Book Workers, I felt like I want to break out of that. Mm. I, I want to try something else. Mm-hmm. Mm. And I, I felt like often when, you know, when you go through all this, you go through the sewing and the headbands and the, attaching the end sheets and everything and then you have to put this cover on and then nothing is visible anymore uh. <laughs> all the neat stuff that's going on underneath is not visible 
Hmm. I wanted to, and the other thing I didn't, I wanted to break the, the well, not break, but, um, you know, you could only display a book, like you open it and you see a spread, that's it. Or you could stand it up yeah. and maybe fan it out a little bit, but that's all you could ever do with a book. Hmm. If you hmm. want to show the cover, then it's even worse, you know, I mean, it just didn't appeal to me. I, I wanted something that comes that is like more sculptural and stretches mm -hmm. out and opens up and just has other um, things. Hmm. Well, I also have to say that um, working at the New York Botanical Garden and having total access to their library, and I found a lot of things that were not traditional. Mm -hmm. You know, that people had actually maybe made themselves, I mean, not mm -hmm. a lot, but there's, there are always incredible surprises or a little bit of a variation of a sewing or some adding something that then leads to another step that you yourself kind of add more to and bring out, mm -hmm. no? So, mm -hmm. I, I mean, there was so much to discover, I felt. Mm -hmm. And even just a little thing like uh, I was very much interested in the conservation bindings and the paper case bindings. Leather has mm -hmm. never, I mean, I'm sorry, Brian, I know you love leather, but <laughs> <laughs> it has never really caught my attention as much as paper has. Hmm. Uh -huh. I've always loved paper. And I mean, I have to admit, working with leather is very sensual and it's beautiful the way it shapes and and follows the contours, but I, I was just a paper person. <laughs> I, I forgive you. Good. I forgive you. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, that's how it came. And oh, that's, that's great. That's what's still what's still happening. Yeah. And the fold is my yeah, the, especially the accordion fold. I'm I'm actually. Uh, working on a project right now that I'm going to do for the Swedish um, bookbinder. Cool. Yeah, and I'm I'm doing just the, all the folds that that are connected to the accordion fold. I mean, mm -hmm. it's endless, endless. You know, you not you don't just fold back and forth, but you can fold diagonally. You can fold over the head. You can cut out pieces. You can do all kinds of things, and so that's. Many of my books come out of that, that folding. Mm -hmm. And I like the way that moves and how it kind of extends itself and stretches. And yeah, but the stacks and also then later, in the, I used, I worked a little time while at the Museum of Natural History, and there was a really incredible collection. Mm. And then also, uh, you know, other people my colleagues that worked in other libraries like the Morgan or uh, New York public or, you know, all these great li oh, of course the um, library of Congress and the Folger Shakespeare, we mm -hmm. all kind of interchanged things and we visited each other and we had tours through the libraries. And I picked up a lot of stuff every, everywhere I went. I, I came home with, with good ideas and I utilized wow. them. It's it's really inspiring, I think, to hear just how you weren't afraid to combine and do new things. Uh, you know, it was like it seemed like at that time you were sort of if you were a book person, these were the standards by which all book people judge right. you know, a book. And 
you were able to recognize something kind of what Amy was asking about earlier, where it was like, well, I don't know, maybe we could do something a little different. Yeah. And so it seemed like you did a really good job. Was it like difficult at all to sort of bridge that gap? I mean, you talked about how you were, you got along well with Richard Minsky and he was doing really different stuff that wasn't yeah, accepted, but this, but. this was so weird. Yeah. On one hand, I'm becoming good friends with Richard. On the other mm-hmm. hand, I'm still Laura's faithful student. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and she was. So how up, did that work? <laughs> well, it, it worked. It worked. In fact, I, I kind of liked it, you know. Yeah. And and I always got along with both of them. Uh, did you experience any of that, like when you were coming out with these sort of new structures? Um, I mean, because to someone who thinks, oh, a bookbinder, they're picturing in their head like what we in the book world would call a codex. You know, it's a specific yes. type of book. Yes. And so did you experience um, any sort of pushback when you started to unroll these different ways in which you know, it really challenged like what people at the time were calling like a book or did it? And maybe it didn't. And people just were like, let Haiti do her thing. She's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I didn't get too many negative. I mean, people, some people just shake their heads and say, well, what's this? But um, mm-hmm. it, my books really are not that outrageous or anything. They're kind of simple and... um. I mean, there's really not that much that you can't like about them. You can say <laughs> they're they're not like well, they're not as difficult to make as a as a fine leather binding. That's for sure. I think f- for me, I think I personally go through a lot of like questioning if something's not popular or if there's getting a lot of um, maybe like negative feedback. Or I guess I'm. I feel sometimes like I'm a little scared if something's outside of the norm. And so I'm wondering if you went through any of that, like, is is this okay to do this? Like people are having such reactions, um, both positive and negative, or did you like thrive on that um, kind of like, I don't know what's going to happen, you know? Well, first of all, I, I have to say I, I never really – I like to do a little, as I said before, I like to do it a little different. And mm-hmm. if I don't get the um, respect or the attention, I, I just keep on trying, you know. Okay, mm-hmm. that's wonderful. But um, but the good thing now is getting older, it doesn't matter anymore. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, I, feel like, I feel like there's incredible freedom. I could do anything. That's wonderful. Mm. And yeah. um, and the other thing is, some early on, like when I was in that on that crossroad of where to go, become a traditional bookbinder, uh, conservation, or book art. Mm-hmm. I was drawn to conservation as a job because I really liked mm. that. You know, I liked working in libraries. I liked to have the access to the stacks. I liked looking through the books. I liked the materials. I liked the tools. I liked working with them, fixing them, um, protecting them, you know, with all that stuff. I wasn't too much interested of, in fine binding because, first of all, I never felt my skills were quite that amazing as some of the other people's skills like for instance um um philip smith and you know i mean where everything was so just 
And also, I didn't particularly I design binding. That I always thought, but didn't I'm not going to put it down because I know there's some incredibly beautiful books, and I love them. And and mm-hmm. um, but it wasn't my thing. I recognized that mm-hmm. I couldn't do that. Yeah. So there was only conservation and book arts. Mm-hmm. And then I thought to myself, by book arts, you cannot make a living. Even though I was asked a lot to teach workshops and stuff mm-hmm. and teach as a center, but that wasn't enough. And I needed something permanent and also like with benefits, you know, things like that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so conservation, conservation became my, my livelihood. You know, I, I was the, mm-hmm. the head conservator at the American Philosophical Society. I get, got a good salary, I was secure, and I could mm-hmm. do whatever in my free time with the book arts. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's really beautiful. And that was really good because I didn't have to depend on pay, on selling the stuff. Mm-hmm. And this is, totally. I think, for any free uh, freelancing uh, craftsperson, this mm-hmm. is difficult, you know? Yeah, Definitely. yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, well, We've talked about it many times. <laughs> <laughs> You never get paid for all the work you put in that. Nobody realizes no. how much how much it takes to do a fine leather binding. Yeah, mm-hmm. and nobody yeah. wants to pay for it. Yeah, right. Yeah, and uh, that kind of brings to mind another question, um, which, as you understand it, how would you, you know, talking to someone who has no idea about books uh, or any of the people in it in the book world, you know, how would you explain the difference between book binding, book arts, and book conservation? Well, book binding is probably the oldest one that people can uh, relate to or, or have heard of, right? Um, I mean, you can mm-hmm. see hand-bound books in many exhibits or museums or stuff. And, and so when you're talking about these books, though, you're mostly, it's just referring to building a book by hand, right? right. When you say book binding. And so, so then, like, um, how would you, like, how does book arts fit into that? Because I feel like there's a lot of overlaps. Oh, there are overlaps between all three of them. Yes, definitely. But I think conservation is kind of in the middle to me. So you, you go from traditional book binding, which always has been part of, uh, I mean, there have always been book binders around. Mm-hmm. But conservation is a new thing. There were not there were no conservators before the sixties mm-hmm. to speak of. Oh, there really? Were, no, the the book conservation really took place after the Florence flood mm-hmm. in big in big ways. The, you know, the Florence flood. Yeah, What's that? The, the Florence flood was like in sixty five, I think, and uh, it flooded the big, important, famous, incredible library in Florence. Oh. In Florence, Italy, right? Oh my gosh. Not Florence, South Carolina. No, no, in, in Italy. <laughs> and the books were deeply water damaged and were lying around in big puddles of mud. And it was oh. horrible. Oh, and no. so people from all over, um, not all over the world, but people from England, France, Germany, America, mm-hmm. that had worked in big libraries and, and knew, I mean, they had already practiced some kind of conservation. They went mm-hmm. there. And that's when the whole thing broke loose. And they said, oh. okay, 
we're not going to do this anymore. They, 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 they realized when books are very tightly bound and the water damaged that they crack and they, you know, so then came the non-adhesive binding and the, the paper, um, the paper case bindings where the cover is attached, but it's not so tight that if the book should have water damage, you know, can get it off and it's easy to rebind. Reversible, mm -hmm. reversibility, um, uh, lack of adhesive, those became all handmade paper. Those became all like parts of the new outlook, how to deal mm -hmm. with very valuable books that not to rebind them in the same style that they once were, but to kind of keep records of them and save the old parts or even Mm -hmm. Save the whole old part of the book and enclose it in a very sturdy and good enclosure, but not to mi mm. mimic, not to mimic anything that that was okay. there once but is not there anymore. And so that so seventy, so that was sixty five. So that it took off, it took off. There were seventy all these wow. conservators and uh, the big libraries like the Library of Congress and. Um, you know, they had already had conservators, but they all mm -hmm. got involved with this. And there was a lot of wow. lot of writing, articles, meetings, you know, everywhere. So conservation definitely needed the, the, the technique that bookbinding had taught a lot of people. But it wasn't that, that complex anymore. It was more open and simplified. Mm -hmm. It was definitely simplified. And with always having the, the um, you're looking at it, can it be undone without doing any harm or without doing mm. more harm? Yeah. And, and you keep the whole library, you keep the whole library in your vision. You know, mm -hmm. a lot of things just need cleaning and, um, and a, a good enclosure. That's all part of it too. Mm -hmm. And coming, well, that's one of my my things that I contributed in my jobs as a conservator. I came up with a lot of different uh, ways to uh, to um, house materials. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. like slipcases, boxes, folders, um, uh, pamphlet covers, all this stuff. And uh, I I researched the materials and and figured out simple ways so that volunteers could help us with that. And we made like thousands and thousands of enclosures, you know. How do you feel about scotch tape? Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, this, oh, okay, okay. So this wasn't was real. Before, before this, the, the, I'm just saying on the Florence flood, right? But before, big libraries had what they called a mandary. And it was usually mm -hmm. in the basement. And there were only men employed. And they would kind of do like these horrible bindings that you have seen. And maybe they don't, <laughs> they used uh, what was called duct tape. No, not duct tape. Um, oh, no. <laughs> but it was kind of similar. It was library tape. It's just oh, horrible gosh. stuff, horrible stuff. It stuck oh, like crazy. No. You couldn't get it off without damaging the material. It had awful colors and texture and so that's another thing I did uh, at the New York Botanical Garden. We um, we founded uh, with, with my, my three colleagues there. We founded a book preservation center. 
and we addressed a lot of libraries in New York State. We went there and we did workshops and we told the people what not to use. Mm. Yeah. Throw all this stuff away. And we, we, and we told them better do nothing than use this stuff, you know. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you see, you see some. Uh, uh, I I used to actually collect books with um, that were repaired in a very uh, weird way. And I remember once finding a book um, where somebody had the the spine had fallen off, and they tried to repair it, and they put just like bands of a of some kind of a tape over it, and then put it down with some tags on the sides. <laughs> so when, when you open the book, the thumbtack comes. You know, the, you can see all the little uh, holes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was the weirdest. There's some really That's strange so... repairs. Strange repairs. Oh man, it's so funny. <laughs> and you know what? The repairs also taught me something. I, I learned something from that too because um, sometimes, some, some if it's really weird and off, then it can be also interesting. Mm -hmm. And you can use it in your own work. Yeah. But Denise, you know, Denise was, we uh, worked with me at the American Philosophical Society. And she and I have both very similar kind of, we're attracted to similar things. And we had, we, we always, you know, roamed the stacks. And when we found something, we would kind of share it and discuss it and make little models and stuff. And, yeah, it was good. A well-earned yawn from boredom or from a tiring, exciting day is still a yawn. To spin a yarn is to twist threads together in either an S or Z pattern, and yet it's better known as telling a tall tale, which means to share a story full of fibs. A tea time meditation may either stop time or go more deeply into infinity. Depends on how you're sitting with the moment. Mugen means infinity in Japanese. Eight comes before nine and after seven, and stands for north and south infinity, if you ask me. Is that a stretch? A lemniscate is the infinity symbol, or sideways eight. Let's collaborate. If you let go of control, then the forces you were fighting can mold you. Mold is a special word with collaborative definitions as follows. To create a shape from malleable materials like clay when wet. A fungus, often woolly in texture, growing in heavy moisture and on decaying matter. And soft, loose earth, an upper soil rich in organic matter. Or what grows over earth's clay. Mold, molding, mold. Moldy mold mold. It even grows out of my mouth. We are and are thrown from the material surrounding us. Akira Satake makes ceramics with patterns reminiscent of distorted wood grains and long brush strokes and stretched out sound waves like if you slowed down his banjo playing, just to describe the aesthetics of one of his many creations. He's a banjo man who brought himself to the banjo land of Asheville, North Carolina after falling in love with flat and scrugs in Japan and having lived in New York as a photographer and musician. There Akira molded moments in time. Then and now he molds vibrations through time. As a ceramics artist, he molds and stretches clay into various instruments of use, from vases to teapots, strainers, cups, bowls, boxes, and more. 
all with a unique liveliness indicative of his serendipitous insistence to refrain from inserting his own ideas into the clay, letting the clay fuel its own creation on the wheel and through the fire of the kiln by working with the energy expressed in the process in his environment, which is the River Arts District along the French Broad River in his Mugen Gallery. Check out our next episode and let him mold your mind along the right path. You mentioned way earlier, you were talking about kind of uh, when you're first learning all of the repetition involved with uh, learning how to make books. Um, And it seems like now as well, even with your more recent work, that like repetition has played a huge role. And could you talk a little bit about that? Just sort of like the role repetition plays with your creative process? Uh, yeah, the repetition is something that I learned is really important to have the patient to do it and you get better at doing it. And so, and books definitely need it, you know, because books are, mm-hmm. are made out of many different parts. And so and a lot of it is repetition. I mean, just like you mm-hmm. fold all your pages, you, you know, you, I mean, you know that it's a lot of repetition. But, <laughs> yeah. but the one thing, the one thing with repetition, I have my limits. I mean, and people have asked me that a lot. Why don't I make editions? Most of my work is one of a one of a kind, and I and sometimes I make five, ten. The most I've ever made of anything is a hundred. Oh, I I just. <laughs> <laughs> that that repetition is too much for me because I'm mm-hmm. I'm already thinking about the next project and I I I, I get bored with it. So <laughs> I'm not really doing editions that much. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, duly noted. <laughs> yeah, and I've, I mean, this has been like a little bit of a of a drawback. This has not been the best thing. I, I, if I had made editions, I would have been much would have been more selling more and stuff like that. But as I said before, I'm not really that, I mean, I'm interested in selling things, but because I had my job, I didn't need to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was my freedom, you know, to not make additions. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. nice to have that back, that little uh, backdrop. Yeah. How about <laughs> you guys? I, I, oh, man. Are you having real jobs? Or are you working? Are you living from your... Uh, we're we're trying. <laughs> yeah, but it's brave. It's a good, it's, it's a really good question. Yeah, yeah. it's hard though. <laughs> yeah, it's just, uh, I mean, it's a mix. Um, we both, Amy and I, in our conversations go back and forth. And um, yeah, I don't know. What do you think, Amy? <laughs> uh, well, I don't, I, I feel like I take breaks. I mean, I, I've gotten different waitressing jobs before and I've gotten you know, job at a, a store and things like that. And it's really refreshing for me to have that break, which is exact. And it's like a, cre- a creative break. To have a break to, to work somewhere else. To do, right. To do, and, and to have the like lack of pressure surrounding what I'm making. Right. So yeah. when you, when you release that pressure, then you can, or I feel that I can just try something new and not have to worry about whether or not it works or whether it's good enough for anything like that. Yeah. So I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> we're 
we're trying, I think Brian and I, we've talked several times. It's just right now about trying to have several different things going at once instead of just carving or just, you know, making one type of book or something like that. It's like, we're doing the podcast and all those things and they're all things that we're interested in. So no, I think that's really great. That's yeah. great. And I, I loved your, um, you know, the thing you did about, um, David Pye, the art and craft. Of, oh, the workmanship of risk. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that book I've had for probably more than 30 years. And just for people who haven't listened to that side projects episode, um, I think it's, the this chapter is discussing kind of like the the tension between um working sort of like the workmanship of risk which would be doing things more freehand like say just carving something with no plans right. uh versus uh where every cut that you make is like right. final and it's so-called risky yes and then mm-hmm. and then the workmanship of certainty which would uh, the extreme would be like a fully automated process where you exactly. like hit a button and it just pops out the product yes. on the end. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I I certainly tend to be more interested in the workmanship of risk, but at mm-hmm. the same time, I also know that it's really important to have a good foundation. Um, mm-hmm. Totally. Of of certainty, you know, so that you can actually go out to the other side, you know, you can't, for once mm-hmm. you know everything, then you can maybe take the next step and go to the uncertainty. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. you have that kind of safety net. Yeah, you have, um, a, yeah, exactly. You have a safety net, you know, you actually know how to do it. But, and this is a problem with a lot of people that take like a couple of workshops. They don't really have that background mm-hmm. and it's, they can mimic it for a while but then i don't know whether there's new stuff coming from their from their experience or so it seems like they limit it you know i you know i i tend to agree with your opinion which is like learn the technique um be really solid and know why you're doing something and and then you know you know like the box of tradition that you're in and you know you can do that and you're you're you know to the best of your ability, honing those skills, but then you know what those are and you can build upon that by taking more risks creatively, right. which I think is a much more solid foundation than just making crazy things and saying that you meant to do it. <laughs> I think it's really necessary to do that too, you know, like mm-hmm. uh, to step out and try the, the risk. Right. Yeah. And and not not sit on, you know. It's it, I've made some interesting observations in my workshops, and uh, one of them was in Germany, where I am from, and I did not have a Buchbinder um, Ausbildung. You know, I did not learn how to become a bookbinder in Germany, and it's mm-hmm. very difficult to become a master in Germany. You have to do like three years of of uh, apprenticeship, which is sometimes. Uh, you know, you just have to kind of clean up the shop and do it and get fetch the lunch mm-hmm. and stuff. Don't learn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you learn a lot too. You learn a lot too, <laughs> and it's very, it's a very strict kind of. Um, um, when you're done, you know, you have to be tested and all that, and it's very strict and it's not easy. And 
everybody who has this Meister uh, in, bo in bookbinding in Germany is very proud of it, you know, and they, so, okay, I went to Germany, I was invited to teach at a, at a school, as like of an art school, and there come these two women, mm -hmm. and they're Meister, they're Einbahnkunst, they're like, you know, they have like the degree and everything, mm -hmm. and they look at me like, I, I knew right away they were coming to spy. <laughs> <laughs> because they could not understand how anybody without the degree in being a master bookbinder can be invited to teach at that school. Uh. And so they wanted to, they came to, to see what was happening and then, you know, take action. <laughs> oh my. Gracious. I tell you, I tell you. They were the worst. Oh. <laughs> they could not even fold a piece of paper straight. <laughs> well, I, well, not the way they ever, the way I wanted them. They could not take the risk. They couldn't. They couldn't. Yeah. Oh, they yeah. had to completely, yeah. what they had learned, That's and they were not open to new, uh, you know, and I said, why are you here? <laughs> but after a week, they... It was not so bad anymore. Oh, that's good. I think they, they, they actually said in the end that they did learn something. Hey! Oh, that, okay. you don't have to be, <laughs> that you don't have to be always so fussy with everything. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. it seems like uh, kind of circling back around, it's almost like when, you, when you're first learning something, you think you're learning the how, but what you should be learning is like the why. It's you through that early those early repetitions. You're trying to figure out, or you at least why. I try to figure out, like why are we doing this step after this step? Why does that make sense? Right. And then right. when you know how to answer that, yeah, you have a much stronger sense of like, oh well, I know why that's done. So if I want to do this, mm -hmm. then yeah. it gives you that more freedom of like lateral movement uh, to kind of do whatever you want. Mm. Yeah, that's yeah. true. That was just a little epiphany I just had. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yep. Yeah. Why yeah. and not how? How and why? How and why? Yeah. The eternal tension. <laughs> <laughs> well, also sometimes people want to kind of skip the simple beginning steps, and mm -hmm. yeah, they want to kind of right go right in and and, and doing the leather bound codex rather than the pamphlet, you know, which they mm -hmm. should be doing. Mm -hmm. Because that teaches right. you a lot, the, the single, single uh, section pamphlet book, you know. Or, or, totally. Or, uh, all these kind of very modest things are, I think, also important to get you on the more, on the way to do more complex things. Right. It yeah. would be like, yeah. uh, I mean, we talked a lot about um, with a stone sculptor that we had on the show a few episodes ago. And Miriam was telling us how she took a very, um, like, kind of went through a traditional program in England. And uh, they spent a lot of the, f the first few months just learning how to cut, like, a flat surface. Yep. And so, you're not, you know, you're not learning how to do these crazy, ornate carvings or anything. I know. Mm -hmm. And that's so important. Yeah. Yeah. It is. Yeah. I mean, even if at the time she probably hated it. <laughs> yeah, probably. Maybe so, yeah. But later on you realize if you hadn't done that, you know, it is really important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Luckily the risk of um, you know, cutting or folding a piece of paper a little bit off, you know, it doesn't risk your house falling down. So that's I guess one <laughs> nice, nice part. 
goodness. Well, so um, what are, what would you say, I mean, over the course of these several decades that you've been, you know, working and innovating, um, what are some of the challenges that you feel like you've faced? Like a lot of times we'll talk with craftspeople and, you know, it's sort of dealing with uh, making the finances work or something like that. We're trying to find the balance between the business side of the business and the making side of the business. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's that's, Those mm -hmm. types of Mm -hmm. tensions. Yeah, but I I kind of avoid this as much as I can. (laughs) I I am very bad at business, and um, that is definitely a challenge and the computer is a big mm-hmm. challenge for me i mean all these business aspects and i admire people tremendously that have this all under control and can mm-hmm. i mean like i don't know as you know helen hebert uh, she does a lot of teaching online and mm-hmm. and she also has a, a, a sunday blog and and she i mean she is unbelievably organized mm-hmm. And yeah. she is making it work, boy. And I think it's a huge <laughs> challenge for her, but she she's able yeah. to do it. And I admire that. I really, I'm always impressed. I'm like, God, how does she do that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm also very slow. Uh, even though my husband <laughs> always tells me, slow down, slow down, slow down. I am slow. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm getting slower. You know, I take my time doing things. I enjoy it too. I tell you, this to me is like, uh, I mean, I'm 83 years old now, and I never imagined I'm having that much fun. That's awesome. In my studio (laughs) and with the people around and, and, you know, how I get accepted here in this new environment. Mm -hmm. uh, It's really great. really great, I have to say. That's that's wonderful. And nobody nobody here is a book artist or, or doesn't even know much about books. They're all painters, photographers, ceramicists, um, weavers, you know, uh, nobody, well, there's one other person who works as paper, but she does quite different. But um, so it's it's really nice to be in an area where you are kind of come in with something new. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I've been here now for, this is my eighth year now. Um, at first, people were not, not very, you know, so what? But more <laughs> and more, uh, I'm getting attention, and you know, people like what they see. Cool, oh, that's, that's awesome. Nobody buys it, but that's what you <laughs> not yet, not yet. Maybe, yeah. maybe it will come. The John C. Campbell Folk School in Brasstown, North Carolina, has opened registration for their May through December of 2021 classes. If you can't attend class with them in person, however, check out their online course offerings through their partnership with LessonFace by visiting LessonFace.com slash folkschool. Scholarships are available for in-person classes. For more information on scholarships or to view their e-catalog or to sign up for the catalog mailing list, you can visit their website folkschool.org. Our sponsor, North House Folk School on the shores of Lake Superior, is taking applications for their Artisan Development Program for 2021. 
The program is designed to benefit emerging craft artisans by providing them with a supportive environment to hone their skills, develop their voices as makers and teachers of craft, and steep themselves in what it means to make a life and a living in the world of traditional craft. Plus, March's Wood Month up at North House. Check out northhouse.org for information on free online woodworking programs and presentations. Once again, more information can be found at northhouse.org. So, Haiti, what about um, the book arts satisfies something that you don't feel you would get from a different job or career? Well, there's a lot of things. I mean, the, the, the very first thing, I think, is the size of the book. Um, I, oh. I really like working on that size, you know, that kind of it fits between your hands that you can handle still, you know? Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I could never make huge paintings. That, that would be so <laughs> so stressful, and I would be worried. What am I going to do with them afterwards? And nobody wants them. And the storage. I mean, mm-hmm. I have friends who are painters, have huge paintings, a whole basement full of paintings everywhere. I like my work to be really kind of compact and small, and a book mm-hmm. to me offers that. And also, mm-hmm. it's not just like making a small painting or a small um, drawing or something, but you have like many of them. And they're all together mm-hmm. in one in one place, in one binding, either in a box or in a folder. I love that. You know, I love that kind of um, the handling. Yeah, the handling. And mm-hmm. also I move a lot. I did move a lot. I hope I don't move again. But um, <laughs> that's, that was another thing. I can always take my stuff with me. Mm-hmm. I love the tools. Yes. I love the fact that the... Um, that you can use only a very few tools and you can make something. I, I love the material, even the leather, the vellum, the um, all the different papers. And I, I found, I felt like I've really found my, my spot, you know, that time when I walked into the New York Botanical Garden, I had no idea what this would mm-hmm. be, end up being, but that was it. It might, and it, maybe it's like this with a lot of other crafts, but I definitely feel like from conversations I have with book people in particular, it's like there was this moment when they just saw they were exposed to some aspect of the process, and they're like, oh, "Ooh, ooh, yeah, that's for me." I don't know why. I know that's you're right. <laughs> I, I've heard this also from other people that it, it grabs you. Something grabs you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and and I think a book is just a very incredible object, you know. No no other thing can mm-hmm. come close to it because it's small, <laughs> compact, and it has so much in it. Yeah, it's true. And they're so nice to be surrounded by. Yeah, right? that's what that's what I feel. Like we have about we have so many books, and it's you know I just I say to my husband, well, I'm going to go uh, a window window shopping. And I walk, I walk by the the the, stack, the the shelves and look at the books and take out this one and that one and I, I mean really in this in this time where you can't go anywhere it is so helpful totally yeah. to have good books ah yep. uh, book love uh, yeah. all right so Haiti who is someone inside of the book arts that you admire and maybe someone outside of your craft. 
Well, I think most of most of the people I admire are, are just like they have really accomplished a lot, you know. They mm-hmm. and, and they mm-hmm. don't hold back. Like I mean, Claire is one of my, uh, you know, Claire Van Breed. I I do admire her a lot, mm-hmm. and she is mm-hmm. older than I am, and she just wrote me a a letter, and it's a most beautiful handwriting. It's completely oh. completely clear no no trembling no nothing wow. and she has this huge program going on so you know she's oh it's wonderful ah uh, it's amazing yeah that's amazing. so cool yeah i'm sorry that just reminded me well you were talking about her program but you you and your daughter ula just came out with a book recently well i i'm i have to say my I, I'm, I'm very fortunate to have a daughter like ula that is um you know, we very much agree on a lot of things and we inspire each other. And she is so capable, much more capable than I am. She has much yeah. more knowledge of, you know, she's a really good craftsperson. She's really good. Oh. And she doesn't quite, I mean, we're doing the book because she knows I don't like rulers. She said, Mom, I think we have to use rulers for this book. <laughs> <laughs> And, and then, yeah, of course, you do have to make, you know, I'm, not that I'm against rulers, but, um, yeah. you know, I don't measure every little 30 seconds of an inch or so. <laughs> yeah. And well, so, could, you, could you tell us a little about the book? Oh, the book, yeah, well, um, oh, the book, it started, with, it started with Paul Jackson. He's an origami um, engineer, paper engineer. He lives in Israel. He has done many books he's a very famous goes everywhere podcast ted talks everything anyway hmm. he, he also teaches a lot of workshops and he went to ascona where i used to teach which is in the swiss in the italian part of switzerland oh cool um on Lego, lago maggiore beautiful place and they have a school there called centro del Belibro. and i taught there many times and then um I gave them, uh, I left always some models behind and they had a vitrine and they put them in there. And so three years ago, he taught there and he saw the models and he got really interested and looked at them and said, oh, let me. And then they told him that I was not going to write a book because I didn't feel like doing it. So he wrote me and said, I hear that you don't, like to write a book, but I would suggest that we write the book together. And mm. um, cool. then I told Ulla that, and Ulla said, no, I'm going to do it. <laughs> 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 and, and we're both proud of it. We're both happy that it's done and that, that it came out good. And it's, it's translated uh, in French, German, and Spanish. Wow. And it will be in Chinese too. Wow. A very small but not so small side note. Ula and Haiti wanted us to emphasize the part that Paul Jackson played in the initiation of the art of the fold. Not only did he connect them with the publisher, but he also really played an actively integral role in getting the necessary momentum for such an endeavor. So, on behalf of Haiti, Ula, the podcast, and the book world, thank you, Paul. Okay. Back to the interview. I mean, the the whole concept of the book, though, you know, it's called The Art of the Fold. Yes. And it more or less kind of outlines like a huge arsenal of 
folding techniques as a basis of artistic expression, right. uh, i.e. like book right. arts, right? Right. If someone wants to see more of your work, where can they find you? Yeah, you, we have the website, um, Art of the Fold, and there's some work some work there. I'm also mm-hmm. a member of the um, Long Year Gallery in Margaretville. They have a website, mm-hmm. and I have work on their website. I mean, if you go to the internet, you see a lot of my work. You can also start on Heidi Kyle's uh, Wikipedia page for some background information. (laughs) Is there one? Yeah. Yeah, there is one. Yeah. Really? Yeah. 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 You made it. I have to check. I have to know. You have to. I have to check. You're going to have to Google yourself. I always feel like really, really kind of weird when I look at myself. I I hardly ever Google myself. (laughs) I am not that, I don't know. I get enough attention as it is. Right. right. You know, it's, it's, it's just enough to handle. I mean, you don't want to get too much attention. Then, then you, totally. yeah. You, you know, then it's out of control. Then that becomes more important than what you're doing anyway. I know. And then it becomes right, like, then right. you get invited everywhere and you have to, and people write you all the time and, Already enough as it is. I, I certainly mm-hmm. don't want more. So now <laughs> you're on this podcast, you're probably going to get a little bit more <laughs> you attention. You know, this is already the third, the third, the fourth inter- interview. Is it really? Oh, really? Oh, cool. I did two for oh. ASC and one oh. here, which is really going to be fun. Like we have this community center here mm-hmm. and they did um, a lot of, they came to my studio and they made a little video and interviewed me and the work and everything and a couple of other people and they're going to show it as a fundraiser. I haven't really seen it yet, but I think it's going to be fun. Dang. Well, uh, even though you've already done several interviews, we really, really appreciate you. Well, this is the the best. This is the best. Oh, good. (laughs) Wonderful. I'm really happy that it's easy to talk to you. Oh, yeah. That's so nice. There's a lot of laughing, which is nice. (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> that is like my favorite thing to do. Yeah, that's yeah. your favorite thing to do, laughing. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's good. Laughing is important. Yeah. Well, it was very uplifting to talk to you. I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad. Yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us, Haiti. It was yeah. really nice. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Well, thank you. And a uh, huge, huge thanks to Ula Warhol. Haiti's daughter and co-author of Art of the Fold for being our technical liaison in this episode. Uh, Next up, we have an interview with ceramicist Akira Sataki. And to give you a taste of the good times to come, here's a brief clip from that interview. Since I started making a pottery, I did uh, several hundreds of uh, glaze textiles. Cool. Mm. And after doing like 400 different glazes, what I mm-hmm. found was I don't like any of them. <laughs> <laughs> get ready to humble. You've been storing that one up for a while. <laughs> Yes. Yes. Okay. I'm so glad I finally got to use it. <laughs> so a free way to support us is to rate and review the show and please subscribe while you're at it. Yeah. And thank you to everyone who has taken the time to rate and review us and to comment and tag us on Instagram. Yes. A huge thanks to 
um, everyone who supports us on Patreon. It helps pay for the website, uh, hosting the audio, microphones, and other bills. And more support means making a, the show a more sustainable endeavor. Um, also, as a, many of you know, we've committed 15% of our donated income to putting money towards craft scholarships. And we have some fun benefits for the different tiers in the works. So there will be more than just a sense of satisfaction as a reward for supporting the show. Uh, and to those of you who are already supporting us, uh, don't worry, we've got you covered too. So thank you. You can follow us on Instagram at Cut the Craft Podcast to see images of our guesswork and stay up to date on happenings and releases. And you can find us both on Instagram at Amy underscore Umble and at BH Beidler. Thank you so much to our sponsors, North Bennett Street School in Boston, Massachusetts, John C. Campbell Folk School in Brasstown, North Carolina, and the North House Folk School in Grand Marais, Minnesota, all of whom play such a huge part in keeping handcraft alive and thriving uh, through their workshops and other educational opportunities in handcraft. And of course, thank you to Brad Vetter for your graphic design, to the High Divers slash Luke Mitchell of the High Divers for your help with the production and for the music, and to Justin Williams for uh, writing those tidbits introducing each guest. Uh, hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Thanks. See you next time. <laughs> <laughs>